trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, this is George Mason University President Gregory Washington. I'll be taking over the podcast from my friend John Hollis from time to time for discussions with some of our university's premier thought leaders. These takeovers are for you, the students of Mason and the Mason community. I understand that you face unprecedented challenges, but you also face unprecedented opportunities. Through these conversations, I hope we can get a better sense of the world around us, what makes us, what moves us, and what shakes us. Today, my guest is Mark J. Roselle, the founding dean of Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government, who has written nine books and edited 20 others on topics such as the presidency, religion and politics, media and politics, and interest groups and elections. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Delighted to be here. Mark, I'm going to start off with this question. The voting patterns were so interesting in South Florida with a heavy Cuban population, which went for Donald Trump. And then in Georgia, it went blue. The blue wall, which was crumbled in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, was reestablished. What intrigued you the most about this presidential election? And from an educational standpoint, what is the biggest learning takeaway? The election really did confirm just how incredibly divided this country is and how polarized we are politically throughout the country. I think what really was most interesting to me, perhaps the most surprising, was really how good a night it was, election night, or the election process, I should say, this time, for the Republicans. Even though Joe Biden won the presidency, the big prize, of course, and there were people who were out dancing in the streets, which was quite remarkable. We've not seen that after a presidential election before, the way we did this year. But on the other hand, the Republicans picked up seats in the House of Representatives. They picked up somewhere around 70 state legislative seats around the country. They flipped one legislative branch at the state level in New Hampshire. The Democrats got none that they were able to flip. And the Republicans only went down one seat in the Senate. They were projected to lose several seats, perhaps their majority. So we are a federalism system. Elections below the level of the presidency do matter a great deal. And although Democrats are celebrating, as they rightfully should, that they won the presidency, the Republicans have a lot to celebrate here. So this was a rather extraordinary election in that we had a president-elect who won very handily by about six million popular votes nationally and a large majority in the Electoral College, and he had no coattails down ticket. So it really does show the divided nature of our politics right now. So this is a really interesting piece of feedback you give here. Let me flip this on its head a little bit. Was it that Biden had no coattails or was this actual election a, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, a referendum on the president? So you had unprecedented turnout on both sides, by the way. So whoever was going to win this election was going to win it with the largest number of votes cast for a presidential candidate. That means a lot of people voted. That's and right. that would also mean that that there were many people who voted against Trump, but then voted for Republicans down ballot. Those down ballot candidates won, and you see the election going the other way. 
Now, that's accurate. So it was a referendum on the presidency of Donald Trump, no doubt about that. And it was a huge turnout election by some projections right now, the largest percentage turnout of the American public in 120 years, about 67 percent turnout in this election. That's extraordinary. It really is. And you're exactly right. Both candidates succeeded in eliciting a very high turnout of their voting base. It's just that the Democratic Party base in this country is larger than the Republican one, and there just aren't enough Republican votes there to win a national popular vote in this country against the Democrats if you have a successful turnout by the candidates of both political parties. So it shows that there was a great deal of intensity in this campaign. Trump was able to get out his base. Biden was able to get out the Democratic base. Much of that, I believe, was more an anti-Trump vote than it was an expression of great enthusiasm for Joe Biden. I don't think the people who voted found him objectionable, but I don't think there was a great intensity factor there for Biden. And then for the people who normally vote Republican or liked perhaps some of the message of the Republican Party better than the Democrats, but were anti-Trump voters, down ticket, they voted for Republicans. And therefore, we got this split result, which was quite extraordinary. Usually, elected presidents who win by a substantial margin, as Joe Biden did, carry with them a number of members of their own party to Congress in that election. And that didn't happen this time. Well, let me ask a separate question. It's one that I hadn't heard discussed much, but I'm a data guy. I like getting into the data and looking at the data. Why is no one talking about third party and the third party impact on the election? Look, the margin of victory in Pennsylvania was 81,000 votes. Joe Jorgensen got 79,000 votes. The margin of victory in Wisconsin was 20,000 votes. Third party candidates combined in Wisconsin got 49,000 votes. And the margin of victory in Georgia was only about 13,000 votes, 12,700 or so. Joe Jorgensen got 62,000 votes as a third party candidate in Georgia. To me, that has as much to say about the outcome. You know, many of those people who were voting were actually voting for third party. And those third party swings would have made the election go in Trump's favor if he gotten a majority of those votes. You're right. That hasn't really been discussed very much, but third party candidates can be spoilers in presidential elections. I am convinced that in year 2000, Ralph Nader's candidacy turned the election to George W. Bush in Florida. No doubt about it. In 2016, there were even higher percentages of votes for third party candidates than there were in 2020. And as we know, the election in 2016 was decided by fewer than 80,000 votes in three states. And the third party votes were much more, actually, than the numbers you just cited for this election cycle. I also believe that the third party votes tipped the election in 2020. Now, some observers say, well, we can't know exactly how they would have voted otherwise if they had split their vote for the two candidates. The result would have been exactly the same. But, you know, you can generally surmise that libertarians, for example, who tend to get the most votes among the third party candidates tend to be a little bit more Republican. But then again, in 2016, for example, so many people thought the election was over before it was over. The New York Times, just several days before Election Day, had a headline that 85 percent chance Hillary Clinton wins. So many people who didn't like either candidate but despised Donald Trump went and voted third party made a protest vote, did a write-in vote, voted for a third-party candidate, never believing that Donald Trump would win. And look what happened. And look what happened. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So let's get into the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Look, this election hinged on a very few states, four states in particular, four or five, very, very highly contested. I highlighted a few of them here earlier. And 
there was still at least a little bit of uncertainty in terms of where Michigan was going to go. And my feeling is if Michigan was not certified and there was a big hoopla behind that, my feeling is that Pennsylvania would have probably followed suit. And then you had just a big brouhaha that could have happened. So explain what we actually avoided. What would have happened had Michigan not been certified and then Pennsylvania not been certified? Well, there's different complicated scenarios that could have resulted from that. And it would have been highly contentious, of course. It probably would have ended up in the courts. I believe ultimately the election outcome would have been certified, but there was the potential some had raised for state legislative bodies, for example, to seat an alternative set of electors. And then because most of the states are led by Republicans at the state legislative level, including some of the states that were critical to the outcome in the Electoral College, boy, we could have had something really unusual happen in this election cycle, particularly if Republican-led legislatures had decided to seat only Republican electors to the Electoral College, certified them on December 8th, and they voted for Donald Trump on December 14th when the Electoral College meets. That just would have been so destabilizing to our system. I'm so glad that we avoided that scenario. But this raises an important question about our democracy itself. We have the most decentralized electoral system of any advanced democracy in the world. We have fundamentally a federalism system that defers to the states to run the national elections. We don't have a national election system. So you have 50 states plus the District of Columbia all having their different rules and procedures for how to conduct elections, which has made this period so complicated for people following the news every single day, looking at the development in Georgia, looking at it in Michigan, looking at it in Pennsylvania, when we had a candidate win by six million popular votes nationally, right? It's it's really something I think that's in need of reform. I'm not sure we're going to get there, though. Let's talk a little bit about the Electoral College. I've taken some time to study it because I'm so intrigued by what has happened. And I actually, I'm one of the few people (laughs) who believe the Electoral College is actually a good thing. Even with the current set of challenges that we have had in the country relative to the popular vote, and how the popular vote corresponds to states. You you know, you've mentioned on at least two occasions in this conversation, the federalism-based system, the federalist system that we have here in the Mm -hmm. country. The whole point of that was to give states a say. Right. And that's the whole meaning behind the Electoral College. Yes. Right? That's right. If you didn't have the Electoral College, at least in my opinion, we would have large swaths of the country that would be ignored, right? Candidates would go to five or six big states. They would basically camp out and run their campaigns there. And the rest of the country would be forgotten about. The Electoral College forces candidates to have a 50-state strategy. That's right. And so those are the positives that I see in it. But it also supports federalism. Yes. Which I think is incredibly important in keeping our country, which is so diverse, knitted together. Can you talk a little bit about it? Actually, like you, I still defend the Electoral College. I would like to see a reform of the Electoral College I'll mention in just a minute. But I I agree fundamentally The Electoral College was established in order to give a voice to the states, especially the small population states. So when the founders were creating this constitution and they had to submit it to the states for ratification, they knew they were not going to get the smaller states to buy in to the new constitution unless they came up with a system that gave the smaller states a significant say Mm -hmm. in our governing system. So you had the United States Senate, for example, a concession to the small states, the Electoral College being another such one. And as you point out, the good thing about the Electoral College is it forces candidates to run broad national campaigns. 
elections in order to win a majority of electors to the Electoral College. If we had a straight, popular vote-only based system, you could imagine at some points in our nation's history a multi-candidate race in which one candidate who is uh, strongly supported within one region of the country but feared and reviled everywhere else, wins the presidency with, I don't know, 28, 30% of the vote in a multi-candidate race and is not a unifying figure, but really represents the interests of a faction or a region of the country. I think that would be terrible for the country to have something like that happen. And I think if we got rid of the Electoral College and had a straight popular vote, we would end up with multi-candidate races. We would end up with candidates winning with only a plurality of the vote. And some might be very concentrated on particular constituencies, right? as a strategy to winning the presidency, I think that would be extremely divisive for the country. The problem with the Electoral College is that because of the trends of demographic sorting of the population, people picking to live where they can be among people like themselves, right, and be in communities where they feel socially comfortable, in a sense. About 80% of the states are strongly one party or the other and not usually contested. And so elections come down to several, maybe as many as 10, 12 states in the Electoral College. What I like is the main Nebraska system, where they break it up according to congressional districts and then give a bonus of two to the candidate who wins statewide. What that would do is California now is in play, right? Now, we know California is a Democratic state. The Republican doesn't campaign there. It would be a waste of resources. It's 55 (laughs) electoral votes that the Democrat automatically gets. It somewhat disenfranchises the California voters at the presidential level because they know the outcome is predetermined in a sense. But if you had a district by district system, the Republican might say, "Okay, I can pick up maybe 14, 15, 16 of those electors to the Electoral College. I don't have to win the state, but now I'm going to go campaign in California. And suddenly you've broadened the map outside of just 10 or 12 states. You have in the big states, but that entity starts to break down in the small states. Correct. Because what happens is those smaller states have more power when they can put the majority of their electoral college votes behind one candidate. Right. And when they can't do that, when they have to spread them out by district, the overall power of that state's say in the outcome of the election gets diminished. There is a double-edged sword to this framework. Yeah, there definitely is. And it is advantageous for the states, the smaller states, right, to be able to deliver a block of votes to a particular candidate. Okay. So what would happen in this reform is that it would be done state by state. In other words, a number of states would in coalition with each other, and some have actually formed a pact saying that, well, if we can get enough states to get together in this pact to comprise a majority of the Electoral College, we all go at once. But nobody wants to go one by one because, as you say, they're giving up some of their power in the Electoral College by splitting their electors uh, if they just do what Maine or Nebraska is doing. Now, the flip side of that is the federalism system allows for states to actually decide. That's right. On how they will count their Electoral College votes, right? That's right. So you're right. A basket of them could decide. They can also decide one by one, right, if they really believe this works. I can see California Republicans wanting to do this. Yep. 
But California Democrats saying, uh-uh. That's right. <laughs> no that, way, right? That's all right. I can see Texas Democrats wanting to do this. The Texas Republicans saying, uh, nah, no, no way, right? That's correct. And so that's the reason why the states that mattered wouldn't get in the basket. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, the, um, so a number of states have said, you know, we'll form a pact and we'll all do this together, but we're only going to do this if we all do it at once. No, I get so it. So it, it. it might happen in the future. The other way to change the Electoral College is by a constitutional amendment, but that requires three quarters of the states to consent. And you're never going to get enough states because, as we discussed before, the smaller states benefit from the Electoral College. They will never vote to change That's exactly their distribution right. of votes. Well, look, this is <laughs> this is a fascinating conversation. South Florida is really amazing to me. I still don't understand it. Perhaps you can help me. Cuban population, Hispanic, Latinx population, Trump was able to significantly eat away at a traditional Democratic stronghold. And that, in my opinion, that was the one entity that probably, Biden would have still won. But had he won Florida, we don't have this two-week challenge we have here. It probably also changes the map from the perspective of congressional seats and the like. That one was really interesting. And given the rhetoric, the strong rhetoric that had taken place with Donald Trump leading up to the 2016 election and for a significant period of time after relative to Latinx, Hispanic voters and people in general, how do you think he was able to pull that off? So let me go back a little bit. 2016, as you point out, with all the overheated rhetoric by Mr. Trump, of course, uh, with regard to immigration and Mexican immigrants, the very offensive statements he made in his presidential announcement in 2015, the predictions were that there would be a Latino surge of voting and it would be against Mr. Trump. The Latino surge did not materialize. Yes. Latino voting was down in 2016 over what it had been in 2012. And it was actually several percentage points more Republican for Donald Trump than it had been for Mitt Romney. So Hillary Clinton got about two thirds of the Latino vote and Barack Obama had gotten about three quarters of the Latino vote. In this election cycle, Trump did even a little bit better yet again with Latino voters overall, particularly male Latino voters. Yes. Why is that? I don't get it. This is the thing that confuses me. So part of it was the anti-socialism appeals, which appealed to many of the voters in southern Florida, particularly the Cuban-Americans. So the Republicans knew that that was a very effective charge to make against the Democrats. And as long as there was a compact between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and that articulated viewpoints on various policy issues that indicated our self-professed Democratic Socialist was having a big impact on the Democratic Party platform and Joe Biden's issue positions. That gave some credibility in the minds of those voters in Southern Florida. Okay. But also some have said that there's a certain machismo style of Donald Trump that appeals within certain communities, particularly to male and younger male voters, where Trump actually did quite well as a Republican in comparison to how other Republicans have done in certain minority communities. Yeah, same for the African-American male. He picked up a couple of percentage points there, too. Yeah, I think it was close to 20% of African-American men went Republican this time, which was remarkable. But I think there's also, in part here, the education divide that's driving it. Not so much race, ethnicity, but more that the Democratic Party is becoming the party of the college educated and people with advanced degrees vote very heavily Democrat. And people without college 
college degrees, lower level of education, including minority communities, not just the white working class that everybody talked about in 2016, but if you look at the data from 2020, working class minority Americans went a bit more Republican yet again. And there seems to be a trending line there separating out the educated from the lower educated, even without regard to uh, race. This gets to the populist argument, right? So President Trump was able to connect to these communities in a populist fashion, right? In my opinion, he kind of ran more as a populist than as a Republican. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see things that you wouldn't see historically Republican features, right? That's why you see this relationship with Putin and Russia, which I think would turn Ronald Reagan over in his grave a number of times. Absolutely. <laughs> you yep. know, yep. but there's a populism here that right. uh, that he seems to have, I don't know, connected with in a very unique way. I don't know. Uh, you know, people are saying that he has kind of cracked the code on what future Republicans need to do. I think that's a very difficult thing to accomplish. But maybe running on this populist framework is a, I don't know, maybe a, uh, for lack of a better term, a uh, recipe mm-hmm. uh, for uh, Republican uh, success in the future. Right. So Donald Trump reconfigured, in part, the political party competition in the United States. He stole some issues from Democrats, for example. So if you go back to, say, the 1980s period, prominent Democrats such as Richard Gephardt and others who talked about America first, you know, and um, restricting trade and the like, trying to protect American workers. You know, these were Democratic Party appeals and Republican Party was more of an internationalist party (laughs) in a way. And that's been turned around by Mr. Trump, who made direct populist appeals to voters, for example, in the manufacturing sector of our economy, who had seen their lifestyles decline dramatically, they believe, as a result of globalization. Mr. Trump talked about bad deals. The leaders aren't representing your interest. He reached out to these voters who typically vote Democrat, and he turned a lot of them to his campaign. And these were people who are traditionally labor union types, Democratic Party voters. So go back to 2016. If you look at the Electoral College map going into that election, and you take all the states that were the blue wall that voted Democrat either all six or five out of six times in the previous six election cycles, that was 257 electors. And then you add Virginia to that. The Trump campaign quit Virginia in the summer of 2016. You've got 270 game over. No way Hillary Clinton can lose, right? So if you take all the states that were solid red or blue, the only way a traditional Republican wins is by running the board on all the remaining states, all the competitive or swing states in the Electoral College. That's not a prescription for winning. The Democrats have a huge advantage in the Electoral College. But Donald Trump broke the blue wall by appealing to segments of the voting population that typically had voted Democratic. And he has really reconfigured the Republican Party. It's become a Trump party throughout the country. And to say that we would have a Republican, as you point out, Ronald Reagan would be astonished, right, to be kowtowing in a way to uh, the leader of Russia, to uh, have a certain affection for strongman leaders and dictators around the world, and then to have this sort of anti-trade America first principle. That was not the traditional Republican Party and to be running up the debt. So he has changed the configuration of the Republican Party, I think, for a very, very long time. And I think what's important now is what does he do next? Does he keep his constituency engaged? Mm -hmm. Does he continue to threaten Republicans who deviate from his positions that he's going to help recruit Trump Republican challengers in primaries? All these elected Republicans who we've all been astonished at that they're not 
not standing up to Donald Trump, they've all been afraid of being primaried. And no, he has right. shown he can knock off people of his own party, and he's and he's willing to do that. So let's delve into that just a little bit deeper. He has primaried people, right? He, yes. And some of the candidates, I'm, I'm trying to thread a fine line here, mm-hmm. some of these uh, candidates have been questionable. And some of them have made their way to the general, only to lose handily to mm-hmm. the Democrat in that election. We have to ask ourselves what America do we want to be, right? The traditional history of America was give us your tired, give us your broke, give us the individuals out of your country who are the stones that none of the builders want to use. And we will take them here. We will make them into something. We will create with those individuals a better nation than you can ever have. And it has been true for a very long time. We've actually been doing that, right? America first seems to go against that framework, right? Yes. The, the placing of walls goes against that framework. The trade deals and the, the disruption and the conflict with countries has gone against that and actually has emboldened and supported those countries. Look, from my interpretation here, the biggest beneficiary to Trump's trade policies has actually been China. We get into the goods and services aspect of it. But I look at it from the perspective of talent. For years, the United States has made a living on the capturing of talent out of Asia, not just China, but also India. We have taken those individuals into our country. Many of them have started companies here. If not, they have become part of the the American capitalist structure, and they contributed greatly to the success and to the standard of life of people at lower levels. Well, we've created a situation now where a significant number of those people are staying in home countries. Mm -hmm. And it looks like that's a benefit on the surface because there's a job that could possibly go to an American. Right. But it's actually a detriment in the long run because those individuals are now competing against us. Right. We may give a person a job here. But that person's productivity was creating three or four or five jobs down line. Yeah. And my fear is that we may lose that going forward with this framework. Yeah, I think we'll get it back. But this has been what I hope a really bad detour in a way these past Mm -hmm. four years in that regard. I mean, I've seen that even with our graduate admissions. Many, most of usually our very best graduate PhD students are international students, people who want to come here and make a better life and contribute. And they work hard, they're talented, and they bring a great benefit to this country. And we've always been a nation of immigrants, right? I mean, right. I, I have grandparents from Italy. I mean, my family's idea was what's great about this country, you can come here and become an American in one day. You ask the question what it means to be an American. It's very different than what it means to be French or German or, or Italian or, that's right. or Chinese. It's, you know, this is, this is a place for everybody. And that's been what America is and what we believe in. And so this anti-immigrant nativist sentiment was always a, kind of an outlier in American politics, right? We had candidates in the past, Pat Buchanan and others, who appealed to those elements, but they never made a serious run for a presidential nomination. They tried, but we always had a consensus between the two major political parties that that's that's not who we are as a country. And Donald Trump has, for now, broken that down, but I think there's going to be a counter-reaction to that and a revival, in a sense, with a new administration coming in. I know Trump is still going to try to stay relevant one way or the other in our political system and continue to 
stoke these divisions and activate a constituency, whether it's through a media empire or planning another campaign or what have you. But he's not going to have the big platform of the presidency of the United States. Joe Biden's going to have that. And that means the attention is going to start turning decidedly away from him. And this is where I think leadership really matters. Leadership matters in projecting an identity of a country, who we are as a people. And Donald Trump showed that you can turn out a different side of people. And that's what I find very disturbing about the past four years. But I tend to be an optimist that we're going to get it back. That's right. This segues to the last segment that I want to get into before leaving here. You an author of a new book called The South and the Transformation of U.S. Politics. Virginia's in the South. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And what we've seen happen in Virginia is a state that was once about as ruby red as it can be, Mm -hmm. shifted to purple, and now is firmly blue. Yes. Not just a little blue. It was bluer than Michigan and Pennsylvania (laughs) and, and, and many of those states. It's a very, very blue state. And recently we saw what happened in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would still call it, even given what's happened in this election, I would call it a red state with a slight tinge of purple. It's it's purplish. You know, Mm -hmm. every, you know, you had the presidency one there, but everything else in Georgia's red. But Georgia is going through a transformation of immigrants and a transformation of migrants, people coming from other states into Georgia because of the growth in technology companies, the entertainment and leisure companies that have that have been moving there and, and, and stationing there and headquartering there. You're seeing this large influx of people who are not traditional Southerners, and yeah. that continues to happen. And so how does that demographic shift? And we're seeing a similar thing in Texas as well. What do you think our states will look like going forward? in the next election or or in the cycle after that relative to politics. Yes. So that's interesting. I had a piece written in Politico back in 2017 saying that Democrats look south and southwest. It's not just about the uh, upper Midwest and Midwest states. Now, my co-author and I knew that 2020 was too soon to make that projection. But we said, based on the demographic trends that we're seeing in the country right now, the in-migration, of course, of people from other states, immigration, the transformations that are taking place because of demographic changes in states in the Deep South and in the South west of the United States, that those states are going to become much friendlier territory in the future to the Democratic Party, and that the Democrats need to start paying very close attention to a new electoral college majority that's going to be emerging in this country. Now, that all works if you believe that demography is destiny, right? That, it, you know, the demographic changes determine what the future of politics will look like. And I always urge caution in that regard, because as we discussed earlier, Donald Trump in the 2020 election turned a significant minority of certain minority populations or communities to the Republicans, which surprised a lot of people, suggesting that certain voting blocks are not necessarily solid Democratic votes now and all the way into the future, that the Democrats are going to have to keep working those communities, earning those votes over the long term, and finding out why exactly did Donald Trump, of all people, succeed in bringing over a certain percentage of voters from Latinos, African-Americans, right, Asian-Americans, who typically 
reliably vote Democratic. That's a key for the Democratic Party in the future. But I think the demographic changes you're talking about suggest that we're going to be looking at a different kind of electoral map, and we're not just going to be paying attention to those upper Midwest states in 2024. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, I guess we will have to leave it there to our students and faculty and uh, our community. This is the kind of quality faculty we have here. It's just an amazing thing to see. Mark, I want to thank you for giving us a lot to think about. And that's going to wrap things up for today's edition of Access to Excellence. We want to thank Mark J. Rosell, the dean of Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government, for his time and insight. And I'm Gregory Washington, president of George Mason University. Stay safe, Mason Nation, and I look forward to seeing you all in the new year. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.